Well, I hope that you are having a good Father's Day, if that applies to you. It is a great day for a baptism, isn't it? And I am glad that as a community we can come alongside Haley and Ned as they take on the blessed task of raising Teddy. They're raising Teddy not to just be a believer in the Word of God, but a doer of the Word of God as well. And each of you, because you are here in the years to come, will be able to tell Teddy the story of his baptism. And my prayer is that you will tell that story to him often so that he will always know that he is claimed and loved by God. We're in a series called Ten Stories. It's based on the genealogy in Matthew Matthew chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, it's the first of the four Gospels. And Matthew's purpose is to help us to know Jesus as the Son of God, but also the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, who through his death death saved the world from its sin. What's unique about Matthew, though, is that he wants us to understand who Jesus is in relation to the story story of Israel. And that's what this genealogy does. It connects all the previous stories of Israel to Jesus so that we understand that what God has had in store for humanity has been planned for a very long time. Now, as we've seen, as we have gone through this genealogy, as we've gone from story to story, not everybody in the genealogy is exactly someone that we would think would find themselves in the family line of Jesus. And I'll say more about that in a second. But, but the point he is here that, that each of us has a story too. Just as each of those who come before Jesus in the genealogy have a story. Now, while the stories in the genealogy lead to Jesus, our stories, because we're on the other side of the cross and resurrection, are really evidence of the truth of what Jesus preached, that the kingdom of heaven is both here now and still to come. I'm grateful for those in the congregation who have the courage and willingness to stand up and tell their stories. And we've heard stories of healing and redemption and movement of the Spirit. And we've got another story for you today, which you're going to hear in a few minutes. But first, I want to head back into this genealogy. Now, last week, we talked about a lady named Rahab. It is surprising to find Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus because Rahab is not a Jew. She's actually a resident of the city of Jericho. She is an outsider, and yet she is pivotal in God's plan for the people taking the land that God has promised for a very long time. Though Rahab's faith is very new and pretty small, and in spite of the fact that she is always described by her profession, Rahab the prostitute, you can see the promise of God just run through her life. And today I get to talk about her son, a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz shows up in the book of Ruth. Ruth, like Rahab, is a foreigner. And Ruth, also like Rahab, is named in the genealogy of Jesus. But unlike Rahab, Ruth has an entire book of the Old Testament named after her. And to understand Boaz, you really have to understand what's going on in Ruth. So here is a quick thumbnail sketch. At the start of the story, we find a woman named Naomi. She is an Israelite, but she and her husband and sons have moved to the land of Moab about 10 years previously because of a famine. Her husband dies while they are there. Both of her sons die, leaving her alone with her two daughter-in-laws. 
in a, the world at that time, um, it was dangerous for a woman to be without a man. A woman alone could be attacked or taken advantage of, and they literally needed men to defend them. Well, Ruth is one of these two daughter-in-laws. One goes back to her family. Um, she decides, um, when, when Naomi decides to go back to her hometown, which is Bethlehem, um, she tells her two daughter-in-laws, you should go back to where you came from. Go back to your families, find new husbands, start your lives over again. One of them does that, but the other one, Ruth, will not go. She famously says... Wherever you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth's love and respect for Naomi is so great that she's willing to leave behind her culture, her family, everything she knows to go with Naomi. And so Naomi and Ruth go back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem where they have nothing except some old family ties. When they arrive in Bethlehem, there is no one to provide for them, meaning they have no food. They have no protection, nothing. And so Ruth begins to glean in the fields. She falls behind the harvesters and picks up what they don't. Leviticus commands the owners of fields to not harvest the edges of their fields um, and not to pick up all the gleanings, but to leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Ruth is both of those things. But gleaning marks her as a foreigner. Gleaning marks her as poor. In this dangerous world for women, gleaning marks Ruth as vulnerable. But she doesn't really have a choice. It's really Ruth's only way of getting food for her and Naomi. And that's the, the setup. And like I said, I want to talk about Rahab's son, Boaz. And, and in this story, which, which really starts with famine and death, and danger and emptiness, and which ends with a birth, safety, and fullness, there is one person who stands at the center of the story, a good man, Boaz. In chapter 2 of Ruth, Ruth has gone to the fields to glean. She doesn't know whose field it actually is, but this is what she must do to eat and here is what happens. I'm in Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 4. Listen to the word of the Lord. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. And so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along the, after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. 
How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kind of a beautiful moment, right? I mean, you can hear in this man's words and in his actions, you can hear that Boaz is a good man. And and this being Father's Day, I want to take just a moment to talk about three things that I think make Boaz a good man. And those three things are that Boaz is a man who protects, he's a man who provides, and he's a man who blesses. In the complicated world we live in today with all the shifting of roles between men and women, it can be a little confusing to know how to be a good man. Some of us have had great role models in our fathers and we can follow their example. Some of us, however, didn't. And sometimes that wasn't even our father's fault. They didn't have great role models as a father either. And we talk a lot about the kingdom of heaven here at Evergreen, that, that through Jesus, God has, has opened the way to a new kingdom in which everything is should, where, the way it should be. And though we don't live in that kingdom fully yet, part of the living that we do into the kingdom now can be learning what it means to be a good man and a good father. And I think Boaz can help us see that. So, first, Boaz is a man who protects. I think Boaz's protection is one of the most remarkable things about him. As a landowner, Boaz has people who work for him. He says, if you read the whole story, um, he has a fair amount of power. He has a fair amount of status in the community, which means that Boaz can really do whatever he wants when he encounters Ruth. He can make choices about the way he's living his life. And when he comes across Ruth, he could do several things. He could ignore Ruth, right? She's not my problem. She's poor. She's a foreigner. I'm not going to gain anything by helping her. Someone else can take care of her. But he doesn't do that. Another option that Boaz has is that he could exert power over Ruth, use his power and status against her, potentially harming her. I will let your imagination fill in the blanks on what that could be. But Boaz doesn't do that either. Instead, Boaz protects her. Stay here, glean in this field where I can protect you. Follow the women who work for me. I have told my men, do not lay a hand on you and drink from the water jars the men have filled. Boaz uses his power and he uses his status for Ruth. And many of us would say, well, of course, But notice that his protection is so surprising to Ruth that she bows down on the ground and says, why would you do this? And he says, because I've heard. I've heard what you did for Naomi. Which, by the way, Ruth did not have to do. She owed Naomi absolutely nothing. And Boaz sees this within her. Secondly, Boaz is a man who provides. I didn't read this part to you, but a little farther in, once again, he instructs his workers to leave Ruth alone, but he also tells them that as they're harvesting the barley, to leave some stalks on the ground for her. It's interesting to me that he chooses to do this. 
I mean, couldn't Boaz simply have just given the barley to her? But he seems like he wants to, like, protect her dignity. And so he has them just leave these stalks for her that she can pick up along the way. Whatever his motive is, by the time she threshes the barley, she has an entire ephah of barley, which I know means nothing to you, but it's 30 pounds of barley. That's a lot of barley. See, in the early 21st century American culture, most men, I think, understand that providing for their families financially is part of what it means to be a good man. For many men, financial provision is the central aspect of what it means to be a good man. And while I would agree providing for your family is important, I have also known guys who thought that because they went to work and made good money, that their earnings were all it took to be a good man. They felt like they didn't need to do anything else. They didn't need to help care for their kids or be part of the community or be a partner to their spouse. On the other hand, in today's world, there are a lot of men whose wives out-earn them or men who, because of certain circumstances, um, maybe they're disabled, maybe they have a, a special needs kid, there's some other situation in which it makes sense for that man to stay home, to have dad stay home and have mom go out to work. And in our culture where too much of being a good man can, can center on this, um, this idea of, of being a financial provider, these guys can feel a little bit lost. And the hard part is, is because financial provision seems to be the only thing our culture actually agrees on when it comes to what a man should do in a family. When, when that's the case, if you're living some other different situation, you can get comments from people who are around you about it. Or you can feel like, I'm not doing enough. But let me say right now, the size of your paycheck, if you get one at all, does not make you a good man. What makes you a good man is is centering your life on the good of those that God has given you, who God has placed under your care, whether that's your wife, your aging parents, your children. I mean, being a provider goes far beyond just making money. And a good man knows that. I would say Boaz knows that. Because he's not only a man who protects and a man who provides. He is also a man of blessing. When you read the story of Ruth and Boaz, and spoiler alert, if you didn't know this, and some of you might not, Ruth and Boaz end up getting married, and they have a son named Obed, who turns out to be the grandfather of King David. But when you read this story, you can't miss that Boaz is a man of deep faith. I mean, you see it in the fact that he has people gleaning in his fields. He's following the law. He is leaving stuff for the poor and the foreigner. But you also hear it in the passage that I read when he says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Those are not words that you just casually say. There is a a deep faith and an understanding of what God requires that is standing behind those words. And you see this in Boaz all throughout the story. 
And it's clear that, that much of what Boaz does is driven by his faith. Of all the things which make a good man good, being a man of faith, a man who can bless, not curse, in my book, is the most important. Boaz, his faith leads him to goodness, as true kingdom faith should. And I would say Boaz's faith makes him a man of protection. His faith makes him a man of provision. And he works its way out in in generosity and kindness and steadfastness. And eventually it works its way out as as he becomes this man who takes on joyfully a family obligation. Now, I know that not everyone had a dad like Boaz, but as we learned with Rahab, his mom, your past doesn't define you. I think it's incredibly important to understand who Boaz's mom is. Because you would have expected that that potentially he would have just fallen down a rabbit hole that would not have been great for his life. But here he is, a man of faith, a man of protection, a man of provision. Your past doesn't define you, and you can be a good man, and you can raise good men and good women if you have children. By being all these things, that Boaz is. I want to invite Patrick Fleming to come up. He's going to share a story with us this morning. Would you please give him a round of applause as he comes up to share his story? Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Um, so I was asked this morning to... Uh, tell a story the service about my journey of faith. Um, and it has to do with my father. Um, obviously, it's a super special day uh, for me because I get to celebrate Father's Day with uh, my three girls, my wife, and Marley are actually in the nursery, but I got Harper here supporting me. Um, and it's, it's bittersweet because I lost my dad to cancer in 1997 uh, when he was just 54 and I was 17. And I'm the youngest of four siblings. Uh, He was a great dad, uh, outstanding in his field as a physician at the Mayo Clinic, uh, incredible high school and college athlete, and most importantly, he was always there and present for us, um, for his family. Uh, And losing him so early stirred up a lot of confusion, a lot of anger, a lot of sadness for me, um, and as you can imagine, a lot of questions. Um, I felt lost. And the strangest thing was is that even though he was gone, the world just continued on without him, even though mine had abruptly stopped. Um, And as you can imagine, I had to grow up a little faster than I had anticipated. And uh, through the difficulty of the grieving process, I had to remain focused as much as I could and and strong. And having a strong family with uh, three older siblings, you know, we, we had each other's backs and we would talk about it. And it was just the hardest thing we've ever dealt with. And I think looking back on it, having that strong family support really helped me get through. Um, So 
I, I didn't realize it at the time, but going through such a traumatizing experience, it takes time and maturity to strengthen your faith, not to mention there's a process to understanding, you know, or at least trying to rationalize why things happen in your life. Um, but as most of us or all of us know, these hard times can, um, can strengthen our faith and um, help us grow as individuals. And over the last 26 years since my father's passing, I've experienced signs and grace, connections, uh, a couple mir miracles of my own, a um, lot of feelings and so many blessings that have reassured me of my belief in God. And we believe, otherwise we wouldn't all be here in this room today, that there is a higher power at hand um, looking out for our, our best interests. And God's constantly working miracles even though we can't see it. Um, and perhaps, you know, I've come to the conclusion that my dad was needed in heaven. And it just stinks that it was so early for him and for me and, and our family. Um, but, you know, maybe he had accomplished everything he needed to here on this earth in God's eyes. And maybe at 54, that was his final curtain call. Um, I look back on it. It could have been more time. It could have been less time. But I just have to accept the fact um, that we lost him early. And I need to accept the fact that the time that we were given um, together was a wonderful thing. And I'm super grateful for that. And I think that in itself is a blessing. Um, and even though he's not physically here, I feel his presence and his spirit all around me. Um, you know, just like we can't see God, uh, we, we pray. We talk to him all the time. Same with Jesus. We know Jesus was real. It's documented in the Bible. Um, so along with prayer, I talk to my dad daily. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> you never cry when you're rehearsing this at home, you know? <laughs> Um, but I talk to him all the time, ask him for guidance, advice. Um, and I just, I know the things that we, we can't see or that are gone are still very much present and active in our lives. Um, we, we have to believe that. We do. Um, and just know things that are going to, they're going to work out despite the pain that we might have to endure um, at the time or throughout our life. But knowing this gives me incredible hope and faith that I'll see him again one day. Um, and to sum all this up, um, I was asked to reshare something by Austin and Don um, that some of you might remember. I, I shared my dad's three steps to a great day, um, which I share with my girls often. Um, I remember sitting at the table, you know, when I was younger um, with some of my siblings, and my dad would ask us this, and we'd just be like, oh my gosh, like so <laughs> corny, so corny, you know? But, you know, growing up, maturing, and having a family of my own, I just, I've realized how simple yet so effective these three steps are. So, um, number one is um, make a new friend. Easy, right? We can all do that. Um, number two is learn something new. And number three is be kind to somebody, which, man, we obviously, we live in a really broken world. I feel like that's probably the hardest thing that we try to do um, today is just be kind. And, you know, we obviously, we could use a lot more kindness in this world. So, please, just share these 
if you want to, share them with loved ones, um, share them with strangers. Um, you never know who you're going to inspire. So um, everyone have a wonderful Father's Day. Um, let me pray us out real quick. Um, Lord, thank you for today, for celebrating you, our Heavenly Father. And all of our dads out there, granddads, um, people that may have raised us as fathers, um, don't let us take these, these days, these moments for granted. Uh, we were put on this earth to, to be somebody, to inspire people, to make changes. Um, and like Boaz, my dad was, he was a good man. Um, so yeah, just, just enjoy life. Enjoy every breath that we've been given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please thank Patrick for coming up here?